Thank you, Yvonne and Katie, for keeping us focused on the systemic and structural issues that impact the lives of so many poor people and people of color in this country. Laws and practices, uh, as well as procedures within institutions, which contributes to residential segregation and poorly resourced schools, as well as communities such as some parts of Hartford that has no uh, supermarkets where people can get fresh food and fresh vegetables. So thank you for keeping us focused on that. I'm going to ask Gina to share some of the issues that impact the LGBTQ community as well. Gina? Yeah. So first of all, 100% agree with everything everybody has said here. Bringing it back to considering LGBTQ folks, I first want to say that Larry Kramer recently passed away on May 27th, and he was a leader in AIDS activism and in LGBTQ rights activism. He pioneered GMHC and ACT UP. And if we look at LGBTQ history in light of what's happening today, it's, uh, it's about learning how as a community to fight back and force the administrations to make changes that structurally impact our lives. And I think that if we're talking about individual choices to fight that system, to make the changes so that we don't have to fight that system in the future. I will say that I know that the, the riots are on our minds right now, very heavily. And in terms of LGBTQ history, the Stonewall riots, I mean, this is June, this is Pride Month, and the Stonewall riots were a riot, okay, that lasted for several days. And that in many ways was the birth of the LGBTQ rights movement today. And some of the leaders in that riot were Black trans women. And we wouldn't be here today without their efforts, like Martha Johnson, for example, and Sylvia Rivera. And one of the things that Larry Kramer talked about in his book, Reports from the Holocaust, The Making of an AIDS Activist, is that when you become a queer person, essentially... People have often historically been raised with shame around their identities. And part of becoming part of the community is understanding oppression. And if you become politicized to try to change that oppression, then you, then you fight back. And that's what he was saying is that we have to fight for the rights of people with AIDS and the rights of LGBTQ people. The Reagan, the Bush, and the early Bill Clinton administrations did nothing, essentially. When AIDS came, it would started in the 80s. It was a, a small handful of gay men. And then there was Haitian people. And it was seen as an individual fault that if you engaged in certain activities, particularly sexual activities, but also drug activities, that you would get the disease and therefore it is your fault, right? So there was a lot of judgment. We know that disease doesn't um, discriminate against uh, human bodies. And it wasn't until activists really acted out to stop business as usual. And frankly, when middle-class white women were getting HIV and AIDS, that suddenly it got the attention of the administration, which tells you something about the priorities of the people in power. And mm -hmm. so it is important for us to say that we need to be priorities and not stand back and wait in line politely for administrations to recognize that this is a problem. And that's what I see when I think about the structural changes that need to take place. If we have, if we're going to blame individual behavior, it's the individual behavior of not protesting the status quo. Thank you. Fiona, did, did you want to say anything about this? Okay. Uh, yeah, I wanted to, I, I didn't want to necessarily repeat um, what everybody have said. You've all made really excellent points. And I just wanted to underscore how important education is and the education system in all of this and the really important role that education can play for the generations of young people who are coming up now so that they can place what's happening in their day-to-day -day lives 
in a broader historical context, right? So that they can understand how racial identities emerged, how racial formations emerged in, in our world. They can understand how all kinds of systems become implicated in it, everything from housing people to punishing people. And we can also use that education system to talk about how people have overcome these kinds of challenges before and how they have been able to imagine a radically different future. One of my concerns as a teacher is when I'm in the classroom, how difficult it is for young people to make sense of what is happening in their lives right now. Right to try to talk to a 17-year-old or 18-year-old about why there's so many echoes of the past in their day-to-day lives and why the civil rights movement uh, didn't end up accomplishing everything that it could possibly have. And it comes back to helping them to understand that these are systems and the systems have to be dismantled. But before they can be dismantled, they need to understand how the systems emerge and the education system plays a really important role in doing that. One of the initiatives that I'm engaged in right now is the attempt to create an African-American and Latino history course and to have that be available in all of Connecticut. And one of the many things that um, comes up is the pushback that we know we're going to get because the pushback is already there in the op-eds and in the initial responses to the legislation passing. But until all of the United States, until these kinds of courses are mandatory, right, until we change the American history narrative so that we can see how much violence and systemic racism is indeed embedded in the history of the United States and is a fundamental part of what the United States is, and to show how people overcame that, struggled against that, came up with different visions and different ideas about how we can forge an equal and democratic society, until that is a mandatory part of our education system, I think we're going to continue to have these kinds of problems. So I just wanted to underscore how important our education system is in as part of the solution to understanding systemic um, inequalities and racism. Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's really important. And along those lines, to go back to some of what Yvonne was alluding to, is the residential segregation and how that feeds into how schools are resourced or not, right? And 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 what that then means, right? So how do we talk about so many of these institutions and policies that are on the macro level, how it impacts individuals in their homes and in their communities, and what can we do as educators in the classroom to change the narrative so that when they work with individuals like, for instance, in Lucinda's case, when they work with a Black woman who shows up pregnant and need health care, or someone who said they have chest pains, that they are able to seriously consider it the way they would one of their peers who are white. And also for our Black professionals who are moving into the profession, how do they understand their identity, their racial identity, and what that means when they're sitting at the table, what that means when their voices are not heard or that their voices are ignored. How do you navigate all that? This is really complicated. It sounds like we might need to have six or seven episodes on this, but if we were to talk about it from where we stand in our classroom with our students who are being educated by us and are then leaving to go out into their professional lives and roles, whether they're nurses or social workers, public health administrators, historians, or people who are administrators. How do we, are making decisions about who gets a loan and who doesn't, you know, how do you transition this into your classroom, the structural racism, the systemic racism, so that they are able to understand it, integrate it, and infuse it in their work when they go into the profession. Mm -hmm. I'd like to comment on that. So I have a lot of thoughts in my head. (laughs) I think the first thing is 
in social work, we introduced Paolo Freire and his concept of critical consciousness. And it has to start there with people, like a really a breakdown of concepts and gaining a critical consciousness of the ways in, in which you either hold privilege or don't hold privilege and the roads that led to where you are today. It requires history and it requires understanding your social location. And those are very difficult concepts for students to grasp, mm. but they are crucial and they have to be incorporated into at least social work programs. I can tell you that many, but not all social work programs across the country have courses like that because I'm involved in a study right now looking at syllabi around affective learning. Affective learning is an important piece because students have to learn how to self-reflect, learn about and gain exposure to emotionally rich content that really talks to areas of violence, marginalization, exploitation of people. And in order to internalize those things. And in my policy courses, one of the things that I have students do is tap into what people in the communities are saying. You know, we have to move outside of the textbook. When I mentioned earlier that there are no stats currently on LGBTQ folks and COVID, there are no official statistics on the part of the government. What we have are places like the Fenway Institute and local medical, community medical settings, gathering statistics so that people have to find their own and create their own evidence. And so it's very important for students to gain exposure to what people are saying within the communities and not just rely on the official word. And so I always tell students, if you're going to look at a policy and think about whether you're, you as a social worker should advocate for or against any kind of initiative, that you must hear from the voices of the people who are directly impacted. And that means walking through with students who are the stakeholders. And it's really fascinating when you talk to students about who the stakeholders are, that um, consistently bringing it back to you know the clients. When we talk about housing policies, and things like environmental racism, which is kind of what we were talking about today. What about the people who are actually living in supported housing? Where are their voices, right? A lot of times those people are not included. Their voices are not included. And so you have to teach people to always remember to include the voices of the people who are directly impacted. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Yvonne, did you want to... Yeah, I wanted to say a couple of things, one of which is that what I started doing in one of the macro classes that I teach is to shift my lens away from or my gaze away from dissecting the oppressed to looking at what privilege means. Right. And I think it, it has become one of the more I don't know how to phrase this, but it's very scary for students to do that. Because what we, what I find that we commonly do is we just talk oppression to death, right? And we talk about the history of oppression. We talk about the narrative of oppression, not to mention that the people who are oppressed themselves many times have not written those narratives. And so it's canned and, and it's given to me and I'm, I'm told that I should teach it this way. And so what I think that we have to do to make the, the playing field more level is to not only concentrate on what oppression means, but what does privilege mean? How do we bring a conversation around privilege into the conversation? Because one would not exist without the other. And I think that's a way of scapegoating real change in our society, is to only concentrate on what oppressive circumstances are and not really find the balance in bringing into the conversation about who benefits from this. And why is it a contested issue? Why haven't we changed over time? And that was one of the things that I did in my class as an activity this past semester. And people had a lot of problems with that. And especially 
as a faculty member who is of African descent, I think it drew suspicion. And sometimes, you know, teaching in a predominantly, in the school that is predominantly European descent in terms of the student population, it draws even more, and I feel it, some contentiousness in terms of why is it that I'm teaching this, you know? And and my idea is that if I'm going to say oppression, then I'm going to say white supremacy too. And people typically have a problem with that. Yvonne, can I piggyback on what you are saying and add one of the assignments that I give my students is to identify an area where they have privilege and then to think about ways in which the, the oppression of other people negatively impacts them, right? So if you're a white person, how does white racism against black folks negatively impact you with the idea that you have skin in the game, as it were, to have greater meaning towards these things? And, and purpose. And students really, really struggle. And I've had students who try to wriggle out of it and say, oh, I can't think of any ways in which I am negatively impacted by other people being oppressed. And I just hold them to it and don't allow that as an answer. And really, people have to struggle and see the ways in which we are connected and that if you bring somebody down, that we all fall down as a result. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of that? One example, at least. One example? Mm-hmm. Um, sure, I can give you a very easy example. When we have, as you were talking about, schools that are poorly resourced, right, as a result of segregation that has led to lower incomes in, in neighborhoods so that the schools don't get the tax dollars because the whole the whole story, you know, behind all of that. So you have children with potential who grow up who are less able to access higher education. And those children who are shut out from systems of higher education might, you know, you may have someone there who has the cure for breast cancer who will never be able to help larger society as a result. back off of both um, what my colleagues have noted about in-class exercise. So as noted as a health disparity researcher, and I always infuse some element of health disparity, whether I use my own experience, but when I disclose to my student, I don't tell who the person is. And at the end, I said, well, you're looking at that person because usually when you give a name, they, you know, their reaction may be more nicer. For one example, I'm not sure if you're familiar with photo voice. It's a qualitative yes. yes. Go ahead. Explain it, though, for the audience. So you're using a picture to tell a story, but the picture is from the person, how they see that particular issue, that object, or whatever that the assignment is about. Well, for me, the assignment is to take a picture of two different communities. Your community and another community that you think is opposite from your community. They decide what is opposite. It could be West Hartford and Hartford, right? And talk about what that picture means. You're looking at two comparative pictures. It could be a picture of a garbage can. What does that look like in your community? And what does that look like in Hartford? And what does that say to you about health disparity? What does that say to you about the built environment? If you're looking at physical activity in your community, it could be looking at the built environment where you're looking at a picture. You could take pictures of trail park or walking path in your community. And you go into another community and you don't see those things. So what does that mean for children and childhood obesity? Right. Those are some ways that I have students kind of reflect on their environment and an environment that they deem their own opposite and reflect on 
what changes one may want to bring forth in the community that they view as the opposite, right? I often, I noted I'll talk about an issue about health disparity. I had an incident with my daughter where she was hospitalized and she wasn't um, passing her urine. And so I shared the, the conversation with my student, but I didn't tell them until at the end. You know, as a Black woman in the healthcare, are seeking healthcare system for your child, she's been hospitalized over a week, so she wasn't passing her urine. So, you know, having the resources at my finger, I could, talk, I could call a, a friend who is a doctor. I'm not a medical doctor, so I could reach out to my network. So I was talking to one of my very close friends, and she noted, have them run a urine analysis to see if she have a UTI, because we weren't explaining why she's retaining her urine. So I, I asked the nurse, you know, can you put in a request for a um, UTI analysis? She said, well, I need to speak to the doctor. I said, fine, speak with the doctor. The doctor came in and said, well, we don't think she, she need a UTI. I said, well, I don't want you to tell me what you think. You're in the business of ruling out and we can't figure out why she's retaining her urine. So I want you to do a urine analysis. Now, the doctor is going to turn to me and tell me that's an extra $100. Hmm. And I, I turned to him. I said, well, I didn't ask you anything about costs. So I, I want that urine analysis, and I want a copy of the transcript. I want to see what the result yield. Now, you're not in the field of um, healthcare management. You're in the field of delivering healthcare in terms of clinic, clinical diagnosis. You don't need to tell me the cost. It's because I'm black. You don't think I have the resources to right. pay for an extra $100. She's been hospitalized over a week. An extra $100 won't hurt because the bank is already broken. Right. 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 And that's just one of the incidents that occurred while we were there. There were many. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I had to assert myself. I said, you know, we're both medical doctors. Well, we're both doctors. You're a medical doctor. I study social behavior. I don't need to reveal my social status for you to treat me and my family the way we should be treated in this setting. Mm. And he apologized. Mm. Needless to say, I share this with my student because this is what we as people of color experience all the time in the medical settings. Wow. And when I say that, I said that person who have experienced that degree of disparity in care is me. That is my daughter's story. And I could tell you others. But because mm-hmm. I know and I could advocate for her, what if you don't have another person to advocate for you in that setting and to share those stories? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. That, that's, that's how I bring my story in the classroom as a Black woman, as an immigrant. Mm-hmm. So yes. and most students are white. 99% of my students are white. So having a black woman talk about her experience, whether they, some student will respect you or they may have some affirmation to you, will look at the system different. Like, wow, you have a person of color. It's not that they have low educational attainment. It's, mm-hmm. it's going all the way to the top. You know, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that story. As you spoke, I was thinking in terms of what you just did, right? When we talk about racism being violent, if you didn't step in and advocate on behalf of your daughter, the outcome could have been something really, it could be death or or, or something, you know, similarly. But also, as educated women, you know, you hold a certain level of privilege. You have resources that are available to you that many other Black women do not have. And so I am hearing you say that because of your privilege and your educational level, you have resources you can access. You have friends you can call in the medical field and say, this is what's happening, and they can provide you with information that would arm you in addressing these systemic and individual racist acts that you encounter. And so there's that 
that side of it that I'd like us to talk about. But what what you your story also showed is how do you build empathy? Gina talked about addressing policies, but also how do you build empathy? Because sometimes the way you can move the needle in the classroom is to be able to go for the effective knowledge, right? The effective way of teaching, because sometimes cognitive peace isn't enough, right? So Lucinda, you wanted to talk a little bit about that? Yes, sorry. (laughs) That's okay. You really hit something I think is so important. First is that we could still have resources and still be a victim to racism and everything that falls under that. But what I love that Katie did, and this is what I do also with my classes, because again, they are predominantly white. You know, sometimes this is the first time I teach senior level students, and this is the first time they hear anything about race. But what Kadian did was that you let them see, because they know you, they're comfortable with you. And a lot of times we talk about things in our textbook and they think it's that other person. It couldn't be my professor in front of me that's experienced that. It has to be that person outside, probably that person who's poor, who uses drugs, who's homeless. Is undeserving. Yes, yes. So Mm. I like, so I do the same thing in my classes. I let them see this is real. These are real people. And when I teach them, I get them out of my textbooks because a lot of times the textbook perpetuates all these structural issues that we're talking about. Sometimes, especially with nursing, I can't speak on other areas, but the nursing textbook, there's a lot of stereotypes in there. Mm -hmm. So I definitely get my students out of the textbook. And Mm -hmm. I like to see what's going on in the news, what's happening, what happened on campus. I want to bring it really close to home. I think it's like when they see that human peace, because I think sometimes we don't look at that. We look at someone, we're taught to look at someone like they're a disease. They're a nuisance to society. They're a problem. And then we have all these things when we're looking at structure that back up that it's okay to treat someone a certain way. When I, I feel like we need to back up and look at people on that human perspective, but we have to keep talking about it. We have to keep saying, even if people are uncomfortable, we have to talk about it. It should be throughout the curriculum. It shouldn't wait to the one class that somebody black is teaching it so they can, it's okay for them to talk about it. It should be throughout. And yeah. if anyone is yeah. uncomfortable talking about race, then they, they're doing a disservice to the students. Yeah. Because I feel like this is all throughout our society and it's only getting worse, or I should say more visible because of what we have now, what we, we can do with our cell phones. But I think it has to start from the very beginning of their education all the way throughout. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's unfortunate because it's the, the truth of the matter is, is that the majority of professors and teachers are white and many of them either are not knowledgeable about issues related to racism and its impact or are uncomfortable talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so it does, that's the other piece of being a professor in a predominantly white institution. It's, the burden is on us. And then sometimes because we are black, as, as one of you mentioned, is that, I think it was Yvonne, is then, then you're seeing if they're not accepting of it, if they're not comfortable with it, then you get demonized mm-hmm. or you get to be the angry black, you know, mm-hmm. woman. And so let's talk a little bit about that, what it's like, because my question was, how does this impact you, your personal life, right? Your, what it, how does it show up in your body when you have to do all this work? teach and also help people understand that when they go out there as nurses, as social workers, as public health administrators, that they should treat people with respect. And equality isn't enough. Equity is what we need to achieve, right? Because we didn't all start out at the same level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, go ahead. No, I I actually just wanted to segue and toggle between um, our last discussion about what's happening in our classroom and and how this shows up for us shows up for us personally. You know, a lot of my teaching load is is focused on teaching African African history, and unless my students travel travel there, it's really it feels disconnected for them. And so, for the last few years, I've been working on some new methodologies and pedagogies where students will help with 
creating an exhibition that connects to a contemporary social justice issue. And so I've been working quite a bit on, on housing. And I, I do want to say that there's so many systems that are indicted in the level of ignorance that some of our students bring, right? That you could get a senior student who this is the first time a senior in college <laughs> or even a student in a nursing PhD um, program, right? Who this is the first time that they're having any meaningful discussion of race. And so we really have to keep on reaffirming that pipeline issues of young people, right? From a very early stage in their education need to be having these difficult conversations and in relation to what that means for the professional development of the majority of white teachers in Connecticut, for example, right, who are teaching our young people, if they're not at ease with the content, if they don't know the content, if they don't have the content area knowledge and the experiences and are willing um, to step into that space and be trained to have these difficult conversations, then we're going to get them in college. Um, very ignorant, very hesitant, and and sometimes unwilling and hostile about having to participate in these conversations where we're trying to get them to understand other people's experiences. And so I have been working on housing exhibitions to get the students to engage with a particular issue. And usually by the end of the semester, most of the students say, how come I don't know this? How come this is the first time I'm finding out about how residential segregation emerged in Hartford, especially students who live in Bloomfield, Windsor, West Hartford, Canton. You know, a lot of our Yukon students are local students and they may have grown up in these towns on the borders of Hartford and still just kind of see Hartford as this place that's just poor because it is and they don't understand the systems that contributed and built and designed uh, and manufactured that kind of poverty and residential segregation. I, I also wanted to mention a little bit of tension in, in being in the classroom and the tension around sort of having my own life be the sociological script. I have to tell my students sometimes that I'm not your script. Students are very empowered to go look up who their professors are, right? And they will read my biography and use that to engage me as if the fact that I have a PhD from Yale or I went to Princeton is what makes it okay for me to be their professor. And it's, <laughs> you know, it's as if I have to sort of perform and get the job all over again. And they've given me that approval, like, yeah, Dr. Vernal, I went and I read your biography and oh my goodness. And my usual response is, my life is not a sociological script. I am here because I belong here. And thank you for researching me. But you really do need to go and educate yourself about the themes that we're going to be exploring in this class rather than thinking that at the beginning you've given me your stamp of approval because you went and read my biography and I'm one of those Black professors who gets to pass, right? It reminds me of some of my... My colleagues who, you know, pipe in and say, I have a black friend, right? Or I have a black friend who, or I know somebody who experienced, experienced this and they end up putting you in a completely different category. And then finally, I wanted to say as a mother of three children, two of them very tall young men, <laughs> very tall young black boys, I have been living in fear since Trayvon was murdered and, you know, hoping that my kids just would kind of slow down and not grow up so, so fast. Cause I, I don't know how to protect them. And I'm very tired of having the conversation with them about where to put their hands when they're with their friends and they get pulled over by the police and how to moderate their voices and how to conduct themselves. Even on Yukon's campus, my, my, son has been pulled over by the police on, on UConn's campus and had to show his ID and was given a test to see if he really knew the UConn buildings, right? It's, it's just been frightening to have two young, to have two very tall young 
black men and to try to raise them and to and to keep them keep them safe i have money sitting in my account to buy my son a car and i'm hesitant to buy him a car cuz i don't want him to get pulled over by the police i feel like he's safer when i'm i drive him around because i don't usually get pulled over by the police but i'm just frightened at what that means for him to have his own car and to be on his own and to have those encounters yes god thank you for sharing that it takes me back it is it is hard to be a mother of a black black son mm-hmm. it really is it's mm-hmm. it's an emotional burden that you never let down and mm. ivan did you want to address that yeah i just wanted to say a couple of things to share an experience with my youngest son my youngest son is 7 years old and he's online with school in now and he goes to a 7 day adventist school and I, i think the instructions the teachers are very good but when we think about how students can go from being educated in in any system whether it's public or private school and then come to us and not really know about macro issues and for social work when we think about macro issues and blaming what we call the victim we think about the culture of poverty and how the culture of poverty has been embedded within our society for a long time and <clears throat> being that um I'm now in the classroom with my son I can see how it happens. It happens when there's a benign neglect in um educating them about the Native American experience and not just the white settlers experience and how there was a difference in terms of how people's lives intersected based on where where they were socially located. I can I can see how it happens that people begin to think about history as a, an experience that only happened in one way. in um a particular time for one kind of person and i see it now because of how i see his teacher teaching his classroom and how i have had to in- interject a couple times and say no it didn't go that way it went this way and we need to be respective of um the experiences of other people and learn more about it so that we can tell the truth because when they get to me i can tell that they have not heard the truth and and it becomes a heavy burden for me to begin to unravel that for them i have one experience where i i was teaching about the culture of poverty and the way that i taught it was telling the the story of the three little pigs and how the story became very popular during the great depression because it essentially held within it blaming people who found themselves being worse off for the conditions they found themselves and if you think about the story of the three little pig the 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 pig that is is looked upon favorably is the one that worked hardest you know the one that was deserving and in telling them that story what i came to realize is that the 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 misconceptions and the miseducation really starts from when they're babies and as a mother it has made me hypersensitive about the stories that he listens to when he's at home with me the curriculum that he's being taught when he's at school and the the content that I introduce him to to kind of counterbalance some of the stuff that I know is out there so that I can make him better prepared to be a critical thinker and to think about and feel when something is not right and be inquisitive enough to go and explore to make it right for himself to to balance it out so i can see how it gets there for him yeah. just to kind of to agree with some of what fiona said and obviously you know your your emotions around the issues of raising black boys who become men is that i i feel the same way i have a 24 year old and a 7 year old son and i live in constant fear of what might happen to my 24 year old and i also am now at the point 
to where, you know, I have to think about how am I preparing my seven-year-old for when he comes out of that zone of safety, when he reaches about 10 or he's pushing up against puberty and society begins to look at him as not something that is endearing, but someone's enemy, you know? And so I I face that constantly all the time. And I wanted to, to mention that. I know, Lucinda, you wanted to say something, and then Katie and I'll come to you afterwards. I always think about that classroom setting, not only for the students, but also for myself. And I was a student for um, for several years getting my PhD. And through that process, I realized first, I have to back up to even say, I never really even thought about my PhD because that was something, I think it was part of that growing up, it was never fed to you that this is something that you can do. And I felt like when I started my PhD program, that's when I found my voice, when I realized I have something to contribute. I realized that my ancestors contributed to maternal health and being able to speak about that to students. But I also found myself in this process also the victim. So I, you know, I'm advocating, I'm in the role too at St. Joe's where I advocate for students and I speak up for them. And then I found myself in a position where I didn't know how to advocate for myself. And I had to learn, I was like, you do this for students, you have to do it for yourself. And I think that's part of the reason why I finished my dissertation before COVID-19, because if not, I would be in serious trouble right now. But I just, I say that the classroom could be that environment where the student feels so vulnerable. And again, I found myself in that situation. And now my approach is how do I make every student feel like they're safe? How do I make students feel empowered? And I feel like sometimes, again, these issues, you know, um, and Gina, you had me think about this. I spoke one time just about, you know, if a lesbian woman comes in for care, she doesn't get the care she needs because the provider makes assumptions. And I had students come up after saying, thank you for talking about that. You know, because I found myself in that situation and we never talk about it. And I realized that I wasn't the only one that experienced that. There's others out there and there's a whole, again, when we're looking at systems, there's something wrong where we're not asking people what they need when they enter the system. And I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. It's just, I, I just feel that it's so important that we have these conversations with, honestly with our students and we do, you know, correct some of those misconceptions that they hear and now you have me even thinking about what was what did they experience before they even started college and how do we encourage them and how do we grow that they're empowered to speak up for themselves when they enter their profession you know yeah. or when they're you know when there's something uncomfortable comes up in the classroom how do i stand up and say wait a minute that's not my experience and you're talking about where i'm from we need to have a conversation about it and how do we do that where the faculty or whoever's teaching it is comfortable saying, you know, wait a minute, let's let her talk. You know, I, I just feel like we got to really look at that environment that we're educating the students. So thank you, Lucinda, for talking about both your personal experience as a student and, and as a teacher. I just also want to ask you, did you want to share anything about your experience as a mother of a young boy? And that, based yeah, that, on what's happening now. Yeah. And as I'm, t- I'm hearing you guys talking is making me also very emotional because my son is 10 and he's almost my height. He's almost five, nine. So I'm like, and he's so gentle. He's so innocent. And there's like these little things that happen where I realize he is more aware than what he, you know, what I think he's aware of. And I'll give you two very quick examples. One, and I'm not going to lie, what's speed in a little bit? And the cops pulled me over and my son was in the back and he was like, mommy, I'm really scared. And that touched me that he is kind of aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and again, we were able to come home and have a good conversation about it. And I realized he learned, he knew more than what I thought he did. Because I just feel like he's going to be so innocent and then something's going to happen to him. He's not going to recognize it and he's going to be a victim which, you know, I feel still can happen. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, and this is, again, something I didn't think he even thought about, 
we were watching the movie Trolls, and this is totally the opposite. We were watching the movie Trolls, and he wanted to know who the voices were behind the characters. So we looked at it. He was like, Mommy, I don't see a lot of Black people of color. I don't see people of color up there. And all these characters are white. Even one of the characters he thought was Black was white. And then when we saw part two, the new one that came out, he was like, look, mommy. And again, I didn't bring this up. He brought this up on his own. He was like, look, mommy, there's more people of color now. And he was like, do you think they realized the first time they didn't have that many? And I never thought, and I say this is something so simple, but I never thought that my student, my son would notice something like that. And it just makes me realize that he's aware. And I also have to talk to him about it. But it's still that fine line of, you know, I want him to be aware of what's going on in our society, but I don't want to scare him at the same time where it shuts, he shuts down. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do I talk to him and have this conversation? Because I'm going to be honest, this past few weeks, I haven't been able to sleep. I just keep thinking about it and I can't get it out of my head. And it's because, you know, and I don't even know, you know, you know I'm learning more about who these victims are that we're seeing in the media. I don't even know them, but it's really hitting close to home. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, that's my, that could be my son right there. Right. Absolutely. You know, and then, you know, someone losing their life, but I still am having trouble explaining to my son, someone losing his life possibly over a fake $20 bill. Mm-hmm. Treated that inhumane and dying over fake money. Mm-hmm. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Thank you for that. But what you just brought up, Lucinda, is the role of Black mothers, of uh, Black mothers in general, because regardless of your ch- the sex of your child or children, uh, you have to be concerned. Brianna Taylor was lying in bed one night when she was shot dead, right? So we have to be concerned. And so that delicate balance between teaching them about the reality of the world that they walk in and the color of the skin, as well as navigating the balance between teaching and scaring them or teaching and prematurely overwhelming them, you know, with information and experience, even though it's real experience. How do we do that, right? So it sounds like in our role as teachers in the classroom, we have to find a way of teaching without becoming, as as Fiona said, the sociological study, right? And and being the professor, as well as being able to teach about respecting and genuinely understanding people of color. They may not have gotten that any other place, but when they go out into their profession, they are going to be working closely with people of color and to be able to see them so that in times like COVID-19, who gets tested, who gets treated, who gets the ventilator, who doesn't, those are all um, decisions that people are making consciously and unconsciously, right? And we know that given the fact that racism exists, whether it's systemically or individually, we don't usually get the best outcomes. And so that may also contribute to why we're dying at such large numbers as well. All right, so I'm going to ask Gina and Yvonne, I see your hands, so you can speak. Thank you. So uh, let me let me backtrack by saying uh, I am not a parent. And so I feel your pain when I when I hear your stories, but I don't have a parental story to contribute. But it is important for me to hear your stories just as, you know, we all need to bear witness to these things and and teaching students about bearing witness to these things so that we can then know what to do about them. And one of the things that I do in the classroom, particularly the culture diversity and human rights course, is I challenge the students to think about the first time they experienced a situation where they realized that their identity and life and situation was different from somebody else's. You know, just like, do you have an early memory? And students who are not accustomed to self-reflecting often struggle with that, but it provides them with a personalized opportunity to really unpack that experience and how they were taught layers of messages from society and how to become critical thinkers around that. And 
it's a very powerful exercise for them because you have students who will say, oh, I never really thought about that my economic situation was different or uh, whatever the case may be. Whenever they have a first memory, they can then start to unpack the messages around what difference means and how we internalize those things and don't take a critical lens until our hands are forced to do that. And that helps start them on the road to looking at things that are happening today right? That's the affective learning component because you can throw all kinds of studies and statistics at people around disproportionate outcomes and uh, differential outcomes in in care and death rates and, and things like that, poverty rates. But how we get there has to be connected with this emotional piece. So I give them an example from my own life to start the conversation in order to set the tone that it is okay to discuss these difficult things. And one of the things that I find in the study that I'm working on is that there are some syllabi that have anticipation of difficult emotions and how we will manage them as a classroom as part of the syllabus. And even though we know that students don't, not all students read the entire syllabus line for line, it shows that the faculty member is prepared to invite and discuss difficult emotions in the classroom. And so as faculty members, it is important for us to to anticipate and also plan for that in order to push and stretch our students to be able to tackle these difficult conversations. Thank you. Gina, so we're coming towards the end. We're wrapping it up. I'm going to go to Kadian, and then I'm going to give each one of you an opportunity to just have some last words, okay? Okay. So you asked in the last question because I was off a little, got logged off. Oh, I, yeah, I, th- I thought you wanted to add to the conversation that was happening before, or you can just use this as your last words. Yeah, I'll do. So, you know, when we think about health disparities or what last message I have when listening to our podcast is that we want, we want to provide space for people to stop blaming the victim. As a public health practitioner, we often look at population. And when I say we, I mean uh, everyone, because when you look at a, a health condition, and I wrote an op piece and one of the feedback that I've gotten from readers or don't you think the blame are also on black people why they're experiencing COVID-19? Um, we need to think about contextual factors, poverty, food insecurity, housing. And we talk about some of those these factors earlier that they play a big role in our, our decision to be after care behavior because if you don't have the resources you're only left to make the choices that is within your brain and i go back to the whole narrative of sharing or making or try to have my student empathize i you may disagree with me i don't think you can understand until you have experience you can empathize right so what i often do with my students is to share stories about my friend's experience of person of color or my story as well. I look at myself whenever I social determinants of health. If you see a pregnant young girl, 15-year-old, she has just given birth. What do you think of that young 15-year-old? And the most natural response I often get from my student is that, A, this person was promiscuous. B, they don't have good structure. They want have their own way or wanted to have independence, when in fact that's far, that play a very small role, right? It could be so many other um, social determinants of health around socioeconomic status. And when I paint that picture for my student and look at the end result, I said the the 15-year-old who had that baby at 15, you're looking at the baby in front of you. This is she. Katie, and we're having some technical difficulties at this point. Can you hear me? Okay. 
All right. So, okay. So my last question to you guys is let's focus on some action steps and how we plan to move forward in contributing to the eradication of racism, however you see it, however it resonates for you. Okay, so I'm going to start with Yvonne. I'm going to move down the line. So Yvonne, Fiona, Gina, Lucinda, and then we'll come back to KDN. I think one of the things that I can do as an instructor in the classroom is to continue to give a critical eye to the content that students are learning. One of the things that I traditionally do is try to introduce other other stories or narratives within the context of the classroom. And, you know, one of the problems that I've seen in terms of social work is that a lot of people who write about the oppression of um, specific populations aren't necessarily from that population. And so I think it's important that students hear from the people who are experiencing the thing. And so it means that I have to step, if I'm teaching a human behavior in a social environment class, I have to um, depart from Eric Erickson or Piaget, and Piaget studied his own kids. He was from France, studies his own kids and his neighbor's kids. And so now his ideas are generalized to the whole world. I have to introduce other people who have experienced other things from other populations and who have theorized as well. And so what I work on doing is to diversify my own curriculum and my own understanding of things. As an assistant professor, I'm in a, a tough position, I say sometimes, because I depend on students' evaluation. But at the same time, I have, I have to work a balance between pursuing tenureship and creating a space for myself to be successful and for them to be successful as well. So it takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of thinking to make the, the classroom a positive environment for everyone, but at, at, at the same time, challenge them to move beyond what it is that they've come in with. Thank you, Yvonne. Fiona? So, you know, right now I have to make sure that I use the privileges that I do have. And I, and I do think it's, it's a privilege to be a professor teaching young people in, in college. And I feel like that's the space where I can make the most impact, right? So I'll continue to work with my students so that they can see and think critically and understand from multiple perspectives and, un, and eventually understand their own positions. Usually my takeaway for the students is to, to tell them, you know, like what you see depends on where you look and what you see depends on what kind of light you want to shine on it. Are you using a, is it going to be a candlelight, a street light or a floodlight? And when, and when you do look, are you really going to, going to pay attention to what you're seeing? Are you going to accept what the evidence is telling you? And then more importantly, once we've done all of the analysis and the critical reading, I find my students do feel sort of immobilized and paralyzed if we don't help them understand how they can how they can act, like what specific steps they can take in their own space. And I think this is a really important part um, of education because we can introduce students to all of these histories of oppression and inequalities and inequities and social determinants of health and poor outcomes. But we also have to help them figure out what specific steps they can take in from their vantage points, from their positions of privilege to try and address these conditions. So I think I will continue I will continue to do that. The housing exhibition that I work on is iterative, meaning that it continues to be built out and we continue to add new narratives and new panels, new panels to it. And so in the fall, I will be working with my students, even if we're online, <laughs> I will be working with my students on how to take a look at what's happening with evictions in the coming months and what sort of impact that has on on local communities in Hartford, which is my, my case study. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. So we're going to move on to Gina, then Lucinda, and then Kadian. Thank you. So I don't know really where to begin since this is a tie-up. <laughs> 
we're tying things up. But one of the things that I introduced my students to is the concept of no research about us without us and always making sure that we include the voices of people, that we're not just relying on the Piagets of the world to dominate the literature and the exposure that they have. We have to incorporate the voices of people of color. We have to incorporate the voices of queer people in the conversations that we are having. I tend to use a lot of podcasts, personal essays, tweets, you know, arguments that are occurring online around current events to to make things more relatable to the students. And I bring it back to the purpose and the values of the profession. So we're always bringing it back around. You're learning all of this stuff and then how are you going to apply it? And just as an example, we had a performance last year at University of St. Joseph of, there was a performance called Black And without getting into too much uh, description about it, it really was a very traumatizing, bearing witness to police brutality uh, and racism. And one of the things that I asked students in a reflective piece was, how will the performance inform your practice when working with members of African-American community who have been traumatized by the effects of police violence? And how do their social location impact the reaction that they had to that performance so that they're always seeing that they're coming from a particular perspective and that they must bear witness to other people's pain that is not their perspective and that those things must come together and understanding how your position uh, impacts your ability to work with people and that we are ultimately here as social change agents whether it be on the uh, personal emotional level or the systemic, you know, cultural and larger policy levels for social work as professionals. Great. Thank you, Gina. Um, Lucinda? So, and so just in closing, the COVID situation really, I feel like it really, and the current situation that we're experiencing with race and racism, I feel like it really shined a light on inequalities that exist in our society. And I just feel like we need to, just all of us need to take a moment and reevaluate how we're, because I think a lot of times we're looking at this and saying, oh, race, that's not my problem, that's somebody else's problem. I, I just wanna challenge everyone to look at themselves. Just take a moment and think about what do you contribute to this? What are, what are things that you can do differently? And please don't go to those who are most victimized right now and say, well, what do you want me to do? This is your time to think about it and develop something and do it on your own. Because I think that's just causing more, like they say, throwing fuel on a fire. So look at yourself, think about what you're doing and what changes you can make. Because I feel like as we're looking at this, when we improve, you know, when we improve, even just look at the health, and I, I'm gonna parallel it to um, women, you know, when we improve the health of care of women, we're improving the health of the community. When we're improving the situations that Black people find themselves in in this country, when we make improvements and address those issues, we improve that for everyone. So I just say, just take a step back, look at yourself, and think about, don't act like this is somebody else's problem. This is all of our, this is our problem. So just, I just want you to think about that. Thank you. Katie Ann, we're talking about last words. Okay, um, so I'm going to cut my last word short since I don't know what happened the last time. When we think about what's going on right now, COVID-19 and the racism that we're seeing that's playing out, I don't have a son. I have daughter. I have a daughter. I have a father. I have brothers. I have uncles. And what, you know, just listening to us talking and trying to paint a picture. So when you think about from a male perspective, we're constantly worried about our boys or our male or brothers being brutally assaulted and even dying at the end, at the hand of these institutional racism practice, right? And what I'm seeing for a male, for a female, we are worried about the maternal health outcome that they will experience. Right. So on one hand, we're worried about our male, but also our female in the private sector. They are facing a series of this disproportionately adverse health outcome in terms of maternal health. So when you look at those two dynamic, while one is focusing on male in public spaces, in private space, we have women of color 
also dying, right? So what we need to do is to stop thinking about us versus them. That's not working. Like we're going out to help them. You have to put yourself in the shoes of them if you want to call them them, right? As a faculty, you know, having experienced what's going on right now and in public health, we don't really have a strong, grounded foundation in trauma-informed curriculum. And that's something that I hope to on in the master's program, that we have to have a trauma-informed course design. For social work, you guys have done a wonderful job with that. As public health, we're slow to catch, to get there. And we need to be inclusive with all the stakeholders, right? They need to be at the table, not a placeholder, but also making decisions because at the end of the day, that decision will impact their life. And if we want it to be sustainable, they have to be a part of the decision and the action and the practice. And we need to stop thinking about just individual factors. It's more than the individual factor. I think we have painted the picture that it's not individual. And if it is individual, we or society allow them to make those individual choices because they have no other choices because of the contextual factors or forces that are left in their community or force upon them. So that's my parting um, words that I will leave with your listeners and with your colleagues. Thank you. I have learned a great deal and I enjoy your company. I'm glad we were able to do it, even though it was on Zoom and there were some small mishaps here and there. I think you guys have the right framework for looking at issues of equity and issues of racism in our society. I think it's most important for us to focus on structural racism as well as institutional racism, as opposed to getting distracted by the individual forms of racism and biases and discrimination. I think you guys are powerful. I respect you a great deal. I look forward to continuing my relationship with you and having these wonderful conversations. Again, take care of yourself and in this pandemic and your families and be safe. Thank you. Thank you.